Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. After much debate over the transgender athlete nomination for the NCAA Woman of the Year Award, results on who will make it to the next round are in. Where's the line between public and private when it comes to children's gender identities? What Twitter did to a parent's advocacy group and why they say they did it? FBI whistleblowers coming out with strong allegations against the Bureau. Did officials hide criminal evidence to cover up for the president's son? The White House working to downplay anticipated bad economic news. What the Biden administration is saying about the economy. Former President Donald Trump is back in Washington, first time since leaving office. This as a potential 2024 rival gives a speech on the same day. The Ivy League has made its pick to compete for the 2022 NCAA Woman of the Year Award. And it isn't transgender swimmer Leah Thomas. The conference office chose Columbia University fencer Sylvie Binder instead. Thomas was one of two athletes nominated by the University of Pennsylvania in mid-July. The nomination caused a major debate over the transgender swimmer's eligibility in women's sports. Thomas set records during the 2021 college swimming season, resulting in the NCAA championship, then broke university school records at the beginning of the 2022 season. Thomas swam for the men's team for three seasons before transitioning in 2019. With 151 student athletes remaining, the Woman of the Year Selection Committee will now select 10 nominees from each division, and the top 30 will be announced in October. And more on transgender issues, Twitter has suspended the parental rights organization Moms for Liberty after they posted a tweet criticizing a California gender transition bill. Twitter said the account violated its rules on hateful conduct. Earlier today, I spoke with Tina Deskovich, a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, to learn more. Tina Deskovich, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now, Tina, Moms for Liberty has been locked out of its Twitter account. Could you tell me about the tweet that got you locked out and the reason given by Twitter? Sure. So we were flagged as uh, posting a hateful tweet, which Twitter has locked our account from. And the tweet pretty much just said that gender dysphoria is a mental health issue. And um, it was directed towards the state of California. They have a bill that they've put forward that is a gender affirming bill for children. So they are working to help transition children that identify as a different gender. And not only that, that bill is also trampling parental rights uh, from all other states around the country because they're going to allow uh, children to go to their state uh, to have gender transition surgeries and receive purity blockers and other medications. And so there's there's a lot of concerns about that bill, but our tweet just pretty much said that gender dysphoria is a mental health issue and we need to address it. And Moms for Liberty has been outspoken about this issue, about this push to affirm gender identities of children who come out as gender um, dysphoric or transgender. And even to the point that you mentioned of transforming their lives forever through drug therapies. Why is this issue so important to your organization? Well, we've watched other countries, or they're kind of a few years ahead of us, Europe is. They've already kind of fallen into this um, gender-affirming care for children, and they're realizing that it's it's not a good track for children, that children can't make decisions at the young of age about heck, what they want to eat. You know, they don't even make good choices about what to wear, let alone uh, make, making life-altering decisions about drugs and medical treatments that should be done to their bodies. And so uh, we're looking around the, around the world. We're seeing uh, it's not a good choice. And so America needs to wake up and realize that this is harming our children. These have long-term effects, physical effects, emotional effects, psych psychological effects. And, you know, Twitter shutting us down and trying to silence the conversation it's never healthy in any environment. One thing we value in America is free speech. We understand Twitter is a private company, but it is in modern times, it is the community square where people are discussing ideas and it's important that that stays open and so that people can have healthy debates about issues. And your account is really only the latest in a series of accounts that have been shut down over similar issues from several prominent figures. Why do you think Twitter is coming down so hard on this? 
Twitter seems to hate truth. You know, I think we need to start some kind of hashtag around that because um, all we posted was truth. There was nothing hateful about it. There was nothing um, derogatory about it. It was a truthful statement. Truth is eternal. It is infinite. Uh, it doesn't change. And uh, Twitter wants to come after truth, truth for some reason, and it, it's just not good for our society. And so with the increasing censorship, as it seems to be, about discussions on this topic online, what do you think parents and others who are concerned about this can do to push back? Parents need to organize. You know, we're, our organization is Moms for Liberty. We form in chapters around the country. Uh, it's very hard to stand alone on these issues. You get attacked and bullied and ridiculed. Uh, you need to have like-minded people with you. And you need to understand what's going on. If you don't have middle school children right now, you probably think that this is a, a bizarre thing that is only you know, happening occasionally around the country, but it's not true. Uh, it's happening everywhere. Schools are writing policies that um, not only say, don't, uh, don't uh, inform parents of what's going on in these issues, but purposely deceive parents when children wanna go by a different gender. It's happening in every state in the country. Uh, parents need to be aware and wake up and organize. Tina Deskovich, co-founder of Moms for Liberty, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And Twitter told Moms for Liberty that if they delete the tweet, they can have their account fully reinstated in 12 hours' time. But the moms say they're not deleting it, and they've appealed Twitter's decision. As of 6 p.m. Eastern time, they've not heard back from the tech platform. Now to so-called systemic and existential problems within the Justice Department and the FBI. That's what government whistleblowers are alleging. They say the FBI is hiding criminal evidence that involves President Biden's family. From Republican Senator Chuck Grassley says highly credible FBI whistleblowers told him that officials from the Bureau improperly labeled evidence against Hunter Biden. The senator wrote a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray, saying it seems like there was a scheme in place among certain FBI officials to undermine derogatory information connected to Hunter Biden by falsely suggesting it was disinformation. According to Grassley, the whistleblowers say that the FBI received information about Hunter Biden's criminal financial activity. They then allegedly discredited it as disinformation and placed their findings in a restricted file. Grassley wrote that if these allegations are true and accurate, the Justice Department and the FBI are and have been institutionally corrupted to their very core. Grassley ended his letter by asking Garland and Ray to turn over information related to the Biden family and other topics. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Former President Trump is accused of never ordering the deployment of the National Guard on January 6th. Now, an insider says Trump authorized the National Guard, but the offer was turned down. Here's more. He is purposely Representative Liz Cheney, vice chair of the January 6th committee, had this to say when she spoke with Fox News about former President Trump and the National Guard on January 6th. Donald Trump never issued any order to deploy the Guard to protect the Capitol. That's true, but a former Trump official says that's not the whole story. At the time of the January 6th Capitol breach, Kash Patel was chief of staff for the acting Department of Defense Secretary. He told Epoch Times that under the law, a president can't actually order the deployment of the military for use inside the United States. The Supreme Court said two things must happen. One, the president of the United States has to authorize, not order, authorize the use of the National Guard. Once that happens, step two has to happen as well before they can be deployed. And that is a request from the head of the state, the governor, or in this case, Mayor Bowser, because it's Washington, D.C., or federal law enforcement needs to request the National Guard to be deployed. If those two things don't happen, then any issuance of the National Guard would be literally unconstitutional. Patel says that Trump authorized the use of 20,000 National Guards, but then it was up to D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser or the Capitol Police to request them. Mayor Bowser, in writing, pursuant to her own letter that we released from her, sent to the Department of Defense, declined to issue any more National Guards men and women. He added that the Capitol Police also declined the deployment of the guards. NTD reached out to Mayor Bowser's office and the Capitol Police to ask why they didn't want to have the guards deployed. 
we didn't hear back before broadcast. You can hear more of what Cash Patel has to say by watching The Real Story on January 6th, documentary on EpochTV.com, reporting by Adrian Pazar, NTD News. And former President Donald Trump spoke in D.C. today for the first time since leaving office. Giving us more on what he said, here's NTD's Iris Tao. Taking the stage to a standing ovation at the America First Agenda Summit, former President Donald Trump is back here in Washington, D.C. And Trump's visit here marks his first time back in the city since leaving office 18 months ago. Trump begins by reflecting on the current state of the country. But now our country has been brought to its knees. And pivoting to the November elections. This November, the people are going to vote to stop the destruction of our country. And they're going to vote to rescue America's future. And that's before he spends one-third of his 90-minute speech on rising crime. Our country is now a cesspool of crime. We have blood, death, and suffering on a scale once unthinkable. He also cites a plan to restore public safety if Republicans win back the majority this fall, adding that he's confident that it will continue under the next Republican president. And when a Republican president takes back the White House in 2024, which I strongly believe will happen. It also comes just hours after his former running mate and his potential 2024 rival Mike Pence also spoke in D.C. on the same day. I, I truly do believe that elections are about the future. And that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. Neither Trump nor Pence has publicly confirmed if he's running for president in 2024. But Trump says he looks forward to laying out more details in the weeks and months to come on what he calls an America First agenda. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The White House is downplaying the possibility of a recession. Today, a top economic official updated reporters as the administration prepares to counter the expected negative economic data that will be released later this week. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details from D.C. The White House's director of the National Economic Council telling reporters today that job growth and consumer spending data debunk the argument that a recession is upon us. Let's listen. We are seeing uh, credit uh, delinquencies and uh, measures of credit stress at historically at historic lows, credit card delinquencies at a 15-year low, mortgage delinquencies at a 30-year low. Um, and we are seeing industrial output uh, sustain uh, and, and in positive territory five of the last six months. And so the totality of the economic data is consistent with that uh, type of uh, transition uh, and is not consistent with, uh, with, uh, with a recession. And he was pressed on how the American people can put faith in this positive economic outlook even after the White House had to admit later that it was wrong for calling inflation transitory, a question to which he responded, um, listing off a number of quotes from financial institutions like J.P. Morgan, who have explicitly said we're not in a recession. And adding to that, President Biden said just yesterday that he's not expecting a recession. And the National Bureau of Economic Research is the organization that usually deems whether or not the U.S. is in a recession. So far, they have not made that designation, but there are early signs that our economic growth is slowing. For example, for the first time in nearly two years, the U.S. business activity has contracted and the number of people applying for unemployment benefits have, has been going up over the past couple of weeks. This leads many economists to believe that we, we could expect to see a recession session early next year. Now we will have more insight into this once those GDP numbers come out later this week and the Federal Reserve is expected to meet tomorrow to raise interest rates once again in a bid to handle this record high inflation. Reporting in Washington DC, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up, a county state's attorney overwhelmed by high staff turnover. They've been leaving since the pandemic began, but a former prosecutor says the pandemic isn't the problem. And a major reason for the flight delays and cancellations, not enough pilots. Now the government is trying to fix that, but will it work? Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News.
every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Chicago Tribune reports Cook County's top prosecutor is facing a severe staffing shortage due to the pandemic and morale issues. It's gotten so bad that her office sent out a plea for help. But a former state prosecutor says it's her own fault. And TV's Arlene Richards reports. Since July of last year, 235 people, including attorneys, have resigned from state's attorney Kim Fox's office. Fox is the top prosecutor in Chicago's Cook County. The Chicago Tribune reported that Fox told county officials about the resignations at a hearing last week. She told the Tribune the pandemic has made it extraordinarily difficult for her to maintain staff. But former state and federal prosecutor Charles Stimson says the pandemic is not the cause. Based on your research and what you understand and know about this particular DA in Chicago, what do you think are the reason why so many people are leaving? The main reason people are leaving Kim Fox's office is because of her abysmal and poor leadership and her pro-criminal attitude. Uh, and she doesn't stand up for victims. And prosecutors who want to be a real prosecutor stay in offices where they can do their job and hold criminals accountable and treat victims with sympathy. Uh, and that's not the leadership ethos of Kim Fox. And so she's trying to blame COVID uh, when in fact she was hemorrhaging prosecutors before COVID uh, and she will continue to hemorrhage prosecutors until she's out of office. The Tribune cites official figures showing 280 legal hires between January 2020 and June of this year. Yet the office is still not back to its pre-pandemic level of 770 assistant prosecutors. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on, on what's behind this? Why is, why is she hemorrhaging prosecutors, as you say? Yeah, she's very. She's the first person that George Soros funded uh, uh, back in 2015. He gave uh, almost $500,000 to two separate political action committees to prop her up and install her into office. Billionaire George Soros is the founder and chair of Open Society Foundations, an organization that says it supports societies that promote justice and equality. In a report Stimson co-authored, he cites a Wall Street Journal article that says during the 2016 election cycle, Soros contributed at least $3.8 million to political action committees supporting candidates for district attorney in several states. Stimson said Fox doesn't have management experience, and as prosecutors are leaving, the entire system is affected. When you don't have prosecutors' offices staffed up fully, uh, victims lose out, community safety loses out, and the entire criminal justice framework starts to fray. The solution is getting back to the basics of prosecuting criminals, uh, staying in your lane as a member of the executive branch and enforcing the law fairly, uh, but firmly. NTD reached out to the state's attorney's office, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And staying in Chicago, a 15-vehicle fleet paraded through the city's busiest thoroughfares on Monday afternoon. Their cars had American flags and colorful signs saying NCCP. What is this group and what are they doing? Here's the story. On Monday afternoon, 50 people with the Global Service Center for Quitting the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, drove 15 vehicles through downtown Chicago. 
They were campaigning for America's support on a petition calling for the end of the CCP. Michael Yu, a participant, says the goal is to expose the evilness of the Chinese Communist Party to the American public. Since the CCP took over China, it has killed 80 million Chinese people. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the CCP covered up the outbreak, which led to the deaths of millions of people globally. We need to tell the truth to the American people. Additionally, the CCP has been infiltrating the world, especially in the U.S. Many have been influenced by communist ideology. We hope through this road tour to explain the truth to the American public and help them see through the Chinese Communist Party and help them understand the wickedness of communism and the CCP. That way they can choose righteousness, boycott communism's ideology, and be vigilant about the CCP. Xiang Li, a participant in the road tour, was a victim of the Chinese regime's persecution of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. It's a spiritual practice rooted in Buddhist tradition centered on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. Li was jailed and tortured in China for almost seven years for practicing Falun Gong. Because good people are persecuted. I think I should help people understand the evilness of the Chinese Communist Party and atheism. I am calling people to see clearly that the CCP does not serve the people, but makes people submit to it. The group started in New York, and Chicago is one stop on a 20-state road tour covering 8,000 miles. The group will head northwest all the way to Seattle, Washington. The NCCP website has almost two and a half million signatures for its petition. Yu urges anyone who wishes to support the initiative to sign the petition at nccp.com. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. Turning now to this summer's travel chaos. Flights are getting canceled because there aren't enough pilots to fly the planes. Lawmakers have an idea on how to fix the pilot shortage but will it work? NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. Ready for takeoff? Actually, no, because there aren't enough pilots to go around. Delays and cancel flights. Airline pilots are in short supply, and right now it's mandatory that pilots retire by the age of 65. But a group of lawmakers want to raise that retirement age to 67, so the current pilots that we do have can stay on the job longer. Raising the retirement age is honestly nothing more than just a band-aid to a much larger problem. Josh Yoder is an active commercial pilot flying with one of the biggest airlines in the U.S. He's also the co-founder of U.S. Freedom Flyers. So all this does is just uh, prolong the prolong the issue, um, and you know, two years from now, we're we're going to be back in the exact same boat that we are today. Raising the retirement age can also bring about other problems, says David Noletti, aerospace and defense lead at consulting firm Riveron. When you have very senior pilots who are able to stay on longer, it does limit younger pilots' ability to move up uh, in, in, the, um, in the system, and that affects their pay. It affects their uh, kind of quality of life. Noletti says the life of a pilot is not as attractive as it used to be. Work is getting harder, but the salaries are not going much higher. You know, potentially dangerous conditions, lots of things can go wrong, lots of difficult weather. Uh, and I think the airline industry is going to have to increase pay um, to encourage people who want to fly uh, to go through the training, to get the experience. We're experiencing something called reassignments, where you think you're going to Los Angeles, but then you end up in, you know, Milwaukee. And maybe you end up coming home a day late, and, and there's no... Um, there's no um, schedule integrity, you know, that, that's, that's no longer being maintained, and that's, that's a very frustrating thing for the crews. One U.S. senator supporting the proposal says 14,000 pilots will be forced to retire in the next four years if we don't raise the requirement. Phil Zoe, NTD News. In California, firefighters are getting a handle on the state's largest active wildfire. The blaze is near Yosemite. Firefighters gave an update on any danger posed to the national park. NTD's David Lamp reports. The Oak Fire, not far from California's Yosemite National Park, has expanded rapidly after it began last Friday. But firefighters are starting to get the upper hand. As of Tuesday morning, CAL FIRE says the fire is approximately 18,000 acres and 26% contained. At this point, the fire does not appear to be 
an imminent threat to Yosemite. Uh, sure, it's in the area, and sure, you know, at least one of the main roads into Yosemite is closed and inaccessible right now. But uh, we don't believe that the fire is going to get into Yosemite. Uh, we believe we're going to be able to keep it out of there, and we don't think the conditions are such that that's going to be something that's going to come to fruition in the future. We, we think that we're going to be able to get control of this and stop it well short of getting to that area. The Oak Fire is currently California's largest wildfire so far this year. Officials say the absence of other major fires in the region enabled CAL FIRE to concentrate a large number of firefighters on the blaze. We, uh, as of tonight, have more than 300 engines um, and just about, just under 3,000 total personnel at this fire. Whether they're firefighters, whether they're behind the scenes type people, um, almost 3,000 uh, personnel are here fighting this fire. Fire authorities say the blaze is moving northward into the Sierra National Forest, but no longer in the direction of Yosemite. Thousands of people in Mariposa County remain under evacuation orders. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now to New York City. The bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich is a staple for many residents. But to keep up with inflation, bodega owners have had to raise prices for the famously cheap breakfast sandwiches. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The classic bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich is a go-to for many New Yorkers. It's easy to make, easy to eat on the go, and it's cheap, but not as cheap as it used to be. Bacon, egg, and cheese, you can take that away. Bacon, egg, and cheese is a favorite uh, sandwich for the New Yorkers. Inflation has forced him to increase prices. The cost of his bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich is up from $2.50 to $4.50. Since the beginning of the year, so they start to raise all of the price, being uh, skyrocketing, all of the price. Everything is too high. So every time that we go to, to buy stuff, we go to the wholesales, we have to remark the price because um, they, um, the price they be changed every day. According to the Department of Labor, inflation at the wholesale level climbed 11.3% in June compared with a year earlier. Producer prices have surged nearly 18% for goods and nearly 8% for services compared with June 2021. We've seen a pretty dramatic rise in the wholesale costs. So, you know, whether that is energy or ingredients or materials, everything's been rising pretty steadily for quite some time. Um, you know, and I think consumers, it's showing up for them now. Francis Rice stopped by Marte's Bodega for a bacon, egg and cheese. She's trying to cope with less slack in her budget as prices rise. It means that I buy a good breakfast and stretch it to lunch and don't eat again until I get home, which means I lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, so there's some benefits, all right. You gotta look at the brighter side of things. But as prices continue to rise, the classic bacon, egg, and cheese may soon be out of reach for some. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, European Union members vow to cut gas usage by 15% by winter. The European Council accusing Moscow of weaponizing energy supplies as Nord Stream 1 looks less and less dependable. And business magnate Bill Gates has reportedly sponsored a Chinese state-run program to recruit foreign scientists. That's amid heightened alarm over the Chinese Communist Party's threat to the Western world. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Turning now to Europe, the European Union's member states today agreed to voluntarily reduce their demand for natural gas by 15 percent. It's an effort to increase energy security in the region after Russia's state-backed Gazprom company announced further cuts to its gas delivery to Europe. The company cites technical issues, but the European Council today accused Moscow of continuously using energy supplies as a weapon. Earlier today, I spoke with Nick Loris, Vice President of Public Policy at the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3, Solutions, to learn more. Nick Loris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Now, European Union member states have agreed to reduce their gas usage by 15% by winter. How will this affect daily life in Europe? Yeah, it's a big commitment from the EU nations, and there was a lot of balking at such a commitment in the past uh, few days, because uh, what this means for Europeans uh, is simply energy rationing, and that could mean difficult decisions uh, by which the government forces shutoffs, forces businesses to close, and that could lead not only to uh, difficult situations for households making sure uh, that they have enough affordable, reliable energy, but also for businesses, if they are really to stick to this 15% commitment, uh, it's going to be challenging for some of these businesses to stay operating at full throttle. And so you could see some economic contraction as a result of such a decision. I think that's why there was so much uh, skepticism about such a plan. Uh, it, it does show, uh, on a positive note, some uh, important steps of coordination with urgency among the European Union nations. And so if it's ramped up gradually or if the 15 percent cut uh, number is only in situations where that is things are looking very dire uh, heading into the winter, then maybe the economic pain for households and businesses in Europe won't be as bad. Um, but anytime you're talking about energy rationing and, and cutting off uh, energy supply or energy demand, uh, that makes things very challenging for the next few months heading into winter. And do you think it will effectively reduce Europe's um, dependence on Russia? You know, on the margin it will. Um, it, it really depends what happens with uh, Nord Stream 1. If Russia continues to manipulate energy markets for political purposes and runs Nord Stream 1, uh, you know, at 20 percent capacity or uh, even a little higher than that, you know, that's what's going to make things very challenging. And there's going to be some demand response that's needed because of the lack of supply. Uh, so I think what this is attempting to do is ensure that any worst case scenario where Russia really cuts off supplies to Europe that they make the choices necessary to be in a better situation where natural gas inventories are still relatively high in the winter. So uh, in the near term, it probably won't reduce uh, dependence on Russian gas all that much. I think the long term play is still uh, very much needed in terms of getting more American liquefied natural gas exports, uh, you know, building more renewable power, building more nuclear power, that energy diversification in the intermediate term is certainly going to be necessary. But this is a critical step that's needed to be taken uh, looking at natural gas inventories heading into the winter. Gazprom is further reducing the flow of gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. What could this really mean for winter? Yeah, I think that's the big concern and the big challenge, and again, speaks to the Europe's need to, you know, rid themselves of Russian dependence. You know, this is uh, extends beyond uh, what uh, Russia and Putin has done with Ukraine, and is really uh, affecting the rest of Europe and leading to this energy crunch. And Europe was already making a number of difficult decisions leading up to the winter months to build up natural gas inventories if. Uh, Russia continues a sustained lower supply of natural gas through Nord Stream 1 operating at very low capacities. Uh, it's going to make it very difficult to build up those inventories heading into the winter to make sure there isn't an energy crunch in the winter months, uh, which can be fatal, uh, quite literally, for Europeans. That's when you see loss of life, that's when you see energy poverty, you're really at its worst when people are in need of heat in cold winter months. That's why Europe is really committed as a, an entire continent to take the measures necessary to energy ration now in a way that will hopefully protect them in the winter months. The German parliament recently voted to restart many of it there coal-fired power plants. Do you think that will protect them? Yeah, I think it's a necessary step. Uh, regrettably, Germany took the steps of uh, decommissioning their nuclear power plants, which would have provided 
uh, affordable, clean electricity and would have helped the continent meet and their country meet their climate targets while also you know, staving off some of the dependence that the country has seen on Russia. And now it is really kind of a, an all hands on deck for energy supplies. So uh, I think it, it's certainly sensible um, and reasonable for Germany to restart its coal-fired power plants because they're going to need all the energy supplies that they can get. And the more that they can divert that uh, coal-fired electricity uh, and displace that with natural gas, um, that can help build up the natural gas inventories that can be used in the winter months. So it will certainly help. I think restarting any type of power generation is going to help uh, in the next few months and, again, leading up to the winter. Um, but at the same time, it really shows the folly of what Germany uh, and some other countries have done in terms of turning their back on emissions-free nuclear power. Uh, and now they're in this situation where it's going to be very difficult to meet their climate targets uh, and their energy needs by restarting their coal-fired power plants. And looking at Europe as a whole, what should they do to prepare for winter and for the long term? Yeah, I think the more they can streamline permitting processes to build more energy infrastructure as quickly as possible, um, you know, that could be everything from electric heat pumps to more liquefied natural gas import terminals so they can import more natural gas from places like the United States and like Qatar and Australia. You know, that is something that should be a priority not just if it can help in the winter months, because that's going to be very difficult to do in the next few months, but it can really make a difference uh, in the next few years. And so these decisions about energy rationing in the near term is going to be very challenging. There may be some sort of conservation efforts that uh, households and businesses can do to build up those inventories. But you really, Europe as a whole, should be committed to uh, an efficient regulatory and permitting process to get as much energy infrastructure as possible built in a way that uh, fully rids their dependence on Russian energy supplies. That's ultimately what's going to help them um, not only uh, avoid any type of energy shortage and energy poverty and energy security crisis, but will help with the diversification uh, that is necessary to get off Russian gas once and for all. Nick Loris from C3 Solutions, thank you so much for your time. Thanks again for having me. The first shipments of Ukrainian grain could leave Black Sea ports within days. A deal was brokered last week by the UN to open up the ports to help tackle the global food crisis. Here are the details. Ukrainian officials appeared optimistic on Monday, saying grain could start moving again from the country's Black Sea ports within a matter of days. We expect the first shipment to be completed this week. The UN echoed the Deputy Infrastructure Minister's sentiment. Russia, Ukraine, Turkey and the UN agreed to a deal last week allowing safe passage in and out of three Ukrainian ports, aimed at easing global food shortages. But a Russian missile strike on the port of Odessa the next day raised questions about whether it would still go ahead. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov brushed off criticism on Monday, saying Moscow only targets military infrastructure. Speaking about the episode which you mentioned that happened in Odessa, there is nothing in the commitments that Russia signed up to in Istanbul on July 22nd that would prohibit us from continuing our special military operation, destroying Ukrainian military infrastructure and other military targets. Ukraine's grain exports have been stalled since February when Russia sent tens of thousands of troops into Ukraine. Before that, Ukraine and Russia accounted for one-third of global wheat exports. Rising energy prices and a global wheat shortage are some of the most far-reaching effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moscow denies responsibility for the food crisis, blaming Western sanctions for slowing its food and fertilizer exports, and Ukraine for mining the approaches to its ports. Ukraine's infrastructure minister said officials are taking steps to make sure product moves safely. All convoys will be accompanied by Ukrainian rescue vessels. They will go first along with the vessels of the Ministry of Infrastructure. But we must say that this is not a simple process. Turning now to China issues, a panel discussion aimed at uncovering the true nature of the Chinese Communist Party was successfully held last week, but not without complications. The event's organizer reportedly received a death threat from suspected Chinese authorities. Here's a closer look.
On Wednesday, a panel was held to discuss the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The event was called Wake Up to the CCP's Threat. It was organized by the Global Service Center for Quitting the CCP and the Mount Hope Chinese Association. The Global Service Center for Quitting the CCP helps members of the party and its affiliated organizations renounce their support for the regime. Part of that process involves choosing pseudonyms to protect their safety and to prevent retaliation from Chinese authorities. Two days ahead of the event, one of the organizers, Chris Chung, received the following voice message. Hello, this is a representative of the Chinese Communist Party. We at the Chinese Communist Party have a particular set of skills. We will cook you a great chicken curry, and then we will find you, and we will kill you. The message also told Chung, quote, if you attend the 7 p.m. event, you are responsible for the consequences. The event organizers reported it to the police and FBI. In the end, the panel still went smoothly, with police standing by on site. Among the highlights of the event, American professor Zhang Tianling explained how the Chinese regime infiltrates the U.S. through five methods. Those are overseas propaganda, data collection, intellectual property theft, political agents, and educational or cultural exchange programs. The panel was held in Mount Hope, a town located in upstate New York. Locals voiced positive feedback. I thought it was very, very uh, informational, and uh, I, I benefited greatly from being here. The town's mayor also voiced support and explained what he believes the event brought to the community. People here in the community can educate themselves, so this way that communism doesn't come here to America. Very important. But I think it's even uh, more bold and more brave for the panelists and the organizers to come through and hold such a great community event to show the CCP that they can't scare us into hiding. What's more, a panel member explained why the threat Chung received is so significant. Um, but they use threats commonly to threaten and make people feel afraid to have that fear. And that's even more reason why America is the land of the free, home of the brave. We need to stand for those values and to not succumb to the fear of the CCP, the terror that the CCP rules by. NTD, New York. As the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party grows in the Western world, Bill Gates's ties to Beijing are also coming under scrutiny. The business giant was recently found to have sponsored a Chinese state-run project to hire foreign scientists. Bill Gates is paying for a Chinese Communist Party-run program tasked with recruiting foreign scientists. That's according to a report by independent media outlet The National Pulse. The article cites a June release from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website. It announces the award of a $100,000 grant to the Foreign Talent Research Center, an agency affiliated with China's Ministry of Science and Technology. It oversees the hiring of foreign talents in fields like science and engineering. Once recruited, they'll be working on projects to further China's strategic goals, like military-civil integration. That's the Beijing policy that allows civil technology development to boost the Chinese military. According to the Gates Foundation, the funding will go to a forum on pandemic preparedness and response held by Zhongguanzun, China's state-sponsored Silicon Valley. Its previous events featured remarks by top leaders of the Chinese regime, including Chinese Communist Party head Xi Jinping last year. But the forum's objectives go beyond talks about technology and health. Organizers say it also aims to earnestly study and understand the spirit of the General Secretary's 2021 speech and build a technological hub to go toward serving the national strategy. Earlier this month, officials from the FBI and Britain's security service MI5 made a joint speech in London. FBI Director Christopher Wray identified the Chinese Communist Party as the greatest challenge to the international order. We consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and national security. And by our, I mean both of our nations along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere. MI5 director Ken McCallum detailed the Communist Party's threat in terms of covert theft, forced technology transfers, research exploitation and cyber attacks. The widespread Western assumption that growing prosperity within China and increasing connectivity with the West 
would automatically lead to greater political freedom has, I'm afraid, been shown to be plain wrong. But the Chinese Communist Party is interested in our democratic media and legal systems, not to emulate them, sadly, but to use them for its gain. He further explained how Beijing has capitalized on Western democracy. The Chinese Communist Party is also known for using recruitment programs like its Thousand Talents program to lure foreign students to work in China. U.S. officials have warned that this process facilitates the transfer of technology and knowledge to Beijing. And now to the race to succeed British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The final two candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, have revealed their stance on China. Both are members of the Conservative Party, also known as the Tory Party. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. China has become a key point of focus in the Tory leadership race. Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak said China is Britain's biggest long-term threat and promised to close all 30 Confucius Institutes in the UK, which are understood to be soft power arms of the Chinese regime. But his apparent anti-China stance has come under scrutiny from Liz Truss's supporters, particularly because Sunak's Treasury pushed hard for an economic deal with the Asian nation. In a press statement on Sunday, Sunak drew a hard line against China, saying, At home, they are stealing our technology and infiltrating our universities. And abroad, they are propping up Putin's fascist invasion of Ukraine by buying his oil and attempting to bully their neighbours, including Taiwan. He noted how the Chinese regime is using debt traps on developing countries as a power grab and mentioned the detention and torture of Chinese citizens in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. He also said politicians in Britain and the West have rolled out the red carpet and turned a blind eye to China's nefarious activity and ambitions. From there, Sunak promised to close all 30 Confucius Institutes in UK universities. The institutes are funded by the Chinese authority and are understood to be propaganda tools. Under the guise of promoting Chinese culture in foreign nations, Confucius Institutes suppress discussion about topics such as Tibet, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the persecution of Falun Gong practitioners. Sunak also proposed creating a NATO-style alliance against China's technological aggression and countering Chinese industrial espionage in UK businesses and universities. But those claims were met with scepticism by Truss's supporters. Sir Ian Duncan Smith called the announcement surprising. He said that over the last two years, the Treasury has pushed hard for an economic deal with China despite China sanctioning five MPs. Duncan Smith noted the same issues Sunak raised and asked the former chancellor, where have you been over the last two years? Sunak's turn of heart comes in the wake of reports about his soft and even positive stance on China. In the recent leadership debates, he expressed a mellower position. Where values can be protected, he says he favours trade. On top of this is the positive coverage Sunak received from Chinese state-run media Global Times. It's thought his new stance seeks to win the support of China hawks by dispelling the image that he is too soft on China. Meanwhile, Truss's campaign has said, Liz has strengthened Britain's position on China since becoming Foreign Secretary. Her spokesperson said she will continue to do so as Prime Minister. Former leadership hopeful Tom Tugendhat welcomed Truss and Sunak's stances, saying... I'm pleased that both Tory leadership candidates have recognised the challenges raised by China and called to reduce strategic dependence on Beijing. Truss has had a year's worth of action to back up her stance. She used to be supportive of China, but over the last year we've seen her position turn around, whereas Sunak has only just begun to change his tune, so it remains to be seen how firm his resolve really is. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, businesses in a small Missouri town battling it out, trading barbs in a sign war. The local Chamber of Commerce says it's all for fun. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Locals in a small Missouri town are getting a kick out of a sign war between businesses. It started with McDonald's and Dairy Queen, but now even the bank and the tire guy have joined in. Here's the story. 
An employee at McDonald's in Marshfield, Missouri, recently started a sign war with Dairy Queen, or DQ, across the street. Before long, the whole town was in on it. McDonald's kicked off the war of words. Hey, DQ, want to have a sign war? DQ took the challenge and responded, we would, but we're too busy making ice cream. McDonald's replied, that's cute. Our ice cream makes itself. DQ quipped, you mean it actually works? Shocker. DQ teased McDonald's infamous ice cream machine known for breaking down frequently. McDonald's responded, wow, salty like our world famous fries. DQ mocked McDonald's, why dine with a clown when you can dine with a queen? Other businesses also joined in on the fun too. Arvest Bank chimed in, ice cream machine broken? We have a loan for that. Wendy's joked about McDonald's fries, hot and crispy fries don't arch. Las Cazuelas Mexican restaurant hung a sign saying, we have fried ice cream. Domino's Pizza teased, your signs are cheesy, just like our pizza. The tire service guy held up a sign saying, this sign war is so much fun, we are not tired of it. Kimberly Browning Clift is president of the Marshfield Area Chamber of Commerce. She says it's all about fun. I know that our community is tight knit and I think that people just love to have fun here and it's just lighthearted and so it was really exciting to see the camaraderie and the, the wittiness, <laughs> what they came up with. So, The sign war has been heating up for a few weeks. As of Monday, Browning Clift says she spotted another new sign. Reporting by Angela Moy, NZD News. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.